The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Midnight at the Oasis edition. It's Wednesday, April 4th, 2018, and on today's show, Ready Player One is the new sci-fi fantasy film from Steven Spielberg, based on an extremely polarizing novel by Ernest Cline. It dominated the box office this weekend, but how does Spielberg fare in his grand return to action filmmaking? Next, Barry is a new half-hour comedy series from HBO. It stars Bill Hader as a depressed, low-level hitman who gets bitten by the acting bug during a mission in L.A. And finally, the Cannes Film Festival has officially banned Netflix movies from competition at the festival. What are they so afraid of? We'll discuss. Stephen Metcalf and Julia Turner are both on vacation this week. Last time we heard from Stephen, he was hoisting a pint in London, I believe, and I think Julia is is in California. But I'm joined this week by two great Slate contributors, Christina Cauterucci, a staff writer at Slate, who's joining us from the D.C. office. Hey, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Very nice to have you. It's the first time that you've been on the show that I have also been on the show, so welcome. And Sam Adams, who is the editor of Browbeat and a culture writer at Slate and all-around Slate star. Nice to have you, Sam. Hello. All right, so let's dig in. Ready Player One is an action blockbuster from Steven Spielberg. It's based on a book by Ernest Cline about a boy who escapes his dystopian world to a virtual world whose enigmatic creator has created a contest for control of that world, which is called The Oasis. And the essence of that contest, as we'll see in our discussion, happens to be references to 80s and 90s pop culture. The movie stars Ty Sheridan as Wade Watts, the kid who jumps into The Oasis, the hero, and his virtual avatar, who's named Parzival. The film also stars Olivia Cooke, Ben Mendelsohn, Simon Pegg, and Lena Waithe. We don't have a clip for this movie, but you can listen to a bit of one of the many trailers, which explains the basic premise and gives you a sense of the general jam-packed cacophony. Let's listen. This is the Oasis, a whole virtual universe. You can do anything, be anyone, without going anywhere at all. The Oasis was created by James Halliday, and what he left behind changed everything. A contest. Three impossible challenges. The first to finish gets complete control of the Oasis, which means complete control of the future. The contest has got to be about connecting with someone, connecting with the world. So we take it together? Sure. I think maybe the most characteristic thing of the movie that you hear is at the very end of that clip where you hear a little bit of Aha's take on me, which I don't remember it actually occurring in the movie. I guess it was layered in there somewhere, but there are endless, endless 80s pop hits sprinkled I I think they mentioned it's, um, you know, as I think you get from the trailer, the whole movie is built around this the sort of death dream of uh, James Halliday, played by Mark Rylance, who's this the creator kind of, again, of the Oasis sort of Steve Jobs figure. And I think they mentioned that Take On Me is his favorite video, but I'm not sure we actually hear the song. Right. The so movie. so the idea that, that 80s arcana is going to be what drives essentially the, uh, the quest for control of the world is really central to this movie. Uh, I mean, I'm going to start off right off the bat by just laying my cards on the table. I really hated this movie, like much more than I expected to. And uh, and it has to do, I think, with that with that centrality of, of 80s arcana to world control. I mean, maybe it's just the proximity of the movie's release to the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all the questions we're asking about social media and the Internet and who's in charge and what kind of entity it is. But I feel like this is a movie that needs so badly to ask those questions and that instead 
buries itself in that kind of arcana and considers the quest for whatever the 11th favorite movie of the Mark Rylance character was to be a, a legitimate quest goal. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess I should lay my, lay my cards on the table, too, in that um, I'm essentially a child of the 80s pop culture wise, like most of the stuff I, I grew up on, I imbibed in that decade. And I sort of my position is, is that it's kind of the only decade that I won't allow nostalgia for. Like you may romanticize the <laughs> 70s and the 90s all you want, but the 80s were bad. Um, and movies like this that only remember the 80s through kind of Robert Zemeckis movies or, you know, in the case of the book, um, stuff like Family Ties and Silver Spoons. I just I, I just kind of rebel against that instinctively. And this movie is kind of, you know, sticking that right into your vein and just kind of mainlining um crap 80s culture. Well, I mean, I think the thing that's not very well established in that trailer is that it's a truly dystopic world we find ourselves in here, right? Before you enter the Oasis and everybody gets sort of turned into these digital avatars of themselves and in any, any part of the frame story where they, they jump out of that world and back into the real world, the real world is falling apart in all the ways that we can imagine it really would be in, in 2045 when this movie's set. It, it made me wonder who exactly the movie was for, uh, because I was born in, in the late 80s, I didn't really understand or identify with a lot of the references, even the ones that I did uh, recognize. But the movie itself seemed like it was meant for somebody a lot younger than me who wouldn't have even been alive in the 80s. I mean, it was really formulaic. And in that sense, I kind of liked it. It was like fun to guess where it was going and then be proven right. Um, but the fact that it kind of refused to grapple with the actual questions that we're asking ourselves now about who should own the technologies that define the future um, made it seem like it wasn't for adults in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think I can actually answer the question of who it was for because I happened just by uh, chance I mentioned I was going and uh, friends um son wanted to go see it so i ended up taking a 12 year old boy to it and he was kind of literally pumping his feet like kind of hitting the chair in front of him at the climax and afterwards <laughs> announced that he wanted to see it uh, i believe this is a direct quote 70 bajillion times <laughs> so i think the, the question of who the movie is for is basically him i guess but it wouldn't it be him with his dad maybe i mean it has like christina says it has such a heavy dose of nostalgia it seems so aimed at the kind of comic book nerd middle age consumer of of comic books, video games, and pop culture. Right. I mean, I, I feel like there's this weird sort of second gen quality to it. And it's also being, you know, directed by Steven Spielberg, who is, you know, at this point a man in his, you know, 70s and is, you know, the 80s don't have that kind of mythic resonance for him either. So it's it's really. You don't think so? I mean, that's when he had some of his biggest hits. He, he seems pretty nostalgic to me. I mean, the, the movie made me think a lot about the difference between because Spielberg, when he came up, he was part of this generation of directors called the movie brats, um, you know, who were really kind of known for, you know, taking all the reference points from, you know, John Ford movies and. And, uh, you know, 50s classics and things like that. But there's something at this point when a much more insular form of, of geek culture has taken over. I, I feel like there's something there's a distinction there that I it, kind of worth dwelling on. And I found myself thinking of what this movie would have been like had it been directed by somebody like Paul Verhoeven, who would have really kind of subverted it and, and sat from the keys, inside. Right? Well, yeah, or somebody like mm -hmm. Edgar Wright, who really just just loves to kind of marinate in this stuff. And uh, actually his, his TV series Spaced is one of the things that uh, in the book, I think Parzival and his buddy H kind of sit down to watch a spaced marathon at some point. Um, and but a huge part of what Spaced is about is how kind of 
socially and spiritually emptying it is to to focus all of your energies on pop culture trivia. And it's some, that's something that this movie seems not only disinterested in doing, but almost to be actively militating against. I mean, maybe that's why I feel so strongly about it. If it was just that it was sort of two hours and 20 minutes of eternally long, cacophonous, 12-year-old pleasing video game fun, then I, I would be indifferent to it, essentially. But I kind of regard it as evil. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the book, um, which came out in 2011, is it's interesting. I got a copy from the public library, you know, a paperback from 2012 or whenever that came out. And it's, you know, you read through the beginning and it's just four pages of straight raves from you know, Entertainment Weekly and the New York Times and everybody else. And it's become now this kind of much despised thing. Its reputation has really tanked. And part of what happened in the interim is that we had the whole... Um, kind of Gamergate, I guess we call it a movement or virus or whatever. Can you, you just wanna... quickly explain what Gamergate is? Because I remember when it was happening, I kept thinking I need somebody to just take me to square one and say what is Gamergate. I'm, you know, it's it's hard to summarize, but basically, it's just kind of all the to- most toxic elements of kind of online gamer culture. culture. Um, you know, congealing into this kind of vicious stew and going going after um game designers and game critics, especially ones. Um, who are uh, women and, and people of color and just kind of, you know, hounding them off the Internet, sending them death threats, all sort of things. And it's really kind of exposed the kind of dark underside to this culture. So it's no longer just this kind of fun thing about, like, do you know every line from war games or something? Like that. And it becomes a much more kind of exclusive and uh, becomes this kind of violent reaction against any attempts to kind of encroach on that territory. Um so, but, you know, one thing the book does do is it, it kind of gives you a sense that this is that uh, Wade Watts, who's the main character, um, that this obsession he has with entering this virtual world and solving this contest is kind of gross. You know, there's a whole passage in the book about um, how he has kind of removed all his body hair to f- better fit into this um, haptic suit that allows him to go into this place and, and feel everything that his avatar feels. And it's kind of disgusting, uh, deliberately so. I mean, it, it's, you know, he's sort of shuts himself up in an apartment for six months. And the movie's missing that kind of visceral disgust. I mean, it's less airless than the book in a lot a lot of ways. One thing I think the book mentioned a little bit more than the movie did, which the movie didn't at all, is the implications for people's identities. And um, when you're talking about Gamergate, you're talking a lot about this sort of um, vigilant gatekeeping, people who are invested in this um, exclusion of people who are different from the people who think that, you know, it's it's the it's it's a mark of intelligence to know the f- like 500 factoids about the filming of a certain season of Star Trek or, or like every single move in a certain video game or something like that. And the barrier to entry has to be so high that the only people who can cross it are the people who do fit that mold. One of the one of the characters in the film is revealed um, later in the film to be not what their avatar portrays them to be in the book. um, they their mother specifically says that she's a black she's a white man in the oasis and um in the real world she's a black woman that she gets much better treatment when she's a white man um and the the character takes her mom's advice and becomes a different gender maybe a different race maybe a different species in the oasis it's worth wondering whether uh Parzival would have become friends with this person and trusted them as a partner in this quest if the person had been, you know, a black woman in the oasis. And I, you know, the film just completely glosses over that part of the book that it doesn't play a huge part in the book, but 
it uh, recognizes the fact that, you know, the the world that these people inhabit is not accessible or uh, inclusive of everybody who's actually existing and suffering in the real world. And and even in the book, it's like, you know, this this character that we're talking about is kind of welcomed into um, Parzival's and um, Anorax, who's the um, Mark Rylance's character's is kind of wizard avatar in the world. She's, you know, the, the uh, character we're talking about is welcomed into that world to the extent that she can kind of match them reference for reference. So if you can get every line of dialogue from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you're welcome into it. If you, you oh, that's know, so airless and horrifying. Yeah. And I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but that's, I think that's a big plot point in the book too, right? If you can, if you can recite all of the dialogue from that movie, then you're somehow in like Flynn. Yeah, and that's the the part of the book that is kind of really evil. Is it's just about it's really just about mimesis. It's about taking these beloved geek culture artifacts and just regurgitating them to, with the greatest degree of accuracy. There's no sense of creating something new for them. There's no sense that. Um, James Halliday kind of built the oasis and this this hunt to kind of share the things with that people he um, to share the things he loved with people and inspire them to create new things. He just wants them to like everything he liked in the way that he likes it and be able to spit it back to them as quickly as he can quote it to be able to play, you know, the right video game the way he played it. And that that sort of, you know, onanistic quality to it is really, I think, what's aged extremely poorly and. Do you think, do you all think that that Spielberg and or Mark Rylance, who plays the part of this, you know, Jobs-like character, he's not nothing like Steve Jobs in personality, but in terms of his kind of power over the the world that he lives in, um, do you think that they do anything to problematize that? I know I saw some critics writing about how Rylance's performance, I mean, he's Mark Rylance. He can he can invest a lot of, of layers into even a character like the one he's playing. And I think he plays that character with a sort of sense of sadness and, and regret at a wasted life, but it's it's kind of buried by the movie itself and doesn't end up becoming... I just kept waiting for the moment that this movie was going to have some kind of moral reversal and that, for example, when they got to the end of this quest where they have to find these three keys and insert them and get, you know get to the final goal, which is to win control of the network, that there was going to be some moment of Mark Rylance appearing either as an avatar or recording or whatever and saying oh, you know what, this was actually a horrible idea and it's not all about this and I shouldn't hand over control of the entire Earth, essentially, since everybody's living in the virtual world more than the real world, to, you know, a bunch of random kids who passed some trivia tests. But the movie never does seem to problematize that. Yeah, I think that would have been a great way for the movie to expand upon the book in a productive way. Uh, I think I definitely got that kind of sadness from his performance. That was one of the only things I really liked about the movie. Um and it just all seemed very pathetic that like his entire entree into the human experience and then uh, by virtue of that, all of his fans' entrees into the human experience was like circumscribed by these products of these corporate entities that were probably like shaped by focus groups as much as by the artists themselves. And the idea that, you know, these pop culture references could be some sort of Rosetta Stone to this fortune that's the keys to the technology that rules the world. Uh, it just made it all seem so sad that the hero worship was sad. The hero himself was sad. Right. And I, I mean, I guess I, I do want to interject that as, you know, sort of, you know, problematic and, and airless and, you know, generally uninspiring as this movie can be. I mean, there are a couple sequences I really loved. I mean, I love the, the Mark Rylance performance and there's a first 
um, kind of race sequence um, where there's kind of a big you know road rally that's designed to get you the first of these three keys that will unlock the oasis. And I always, you know, I worried about Spielberg making a movie that was going to be so so digital, uh, so virtual that it was going to just result in in something kind of that just looked really kind of fakey and instantly dated. And I, at least that first car race, I found a little bit thrilling. Like I think that you know the digital aspect lets him do these really kind of long, unbroken. Um, kind of swooping shots and things like that. And some of that's really visually exciting. Um, I agree. It gets it gets really exhausting because this movie is way too long and needed to be way edited down. But, I mean, if you've seen Tintin, for example, you can get a sense of how he uses that kind of virtual space. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg. So we haven't really talked about the visual and how it moves and how it looks. But, yeah, it is put together with a lot of style and panache, which I think is part of the reason that its moral emptiness seems so depressing to me. Anyway, I mean, I haven't given up on Spielberg by any means. I think he's in a great, interesting stretch of his career. And it's it's actually fascinating that he wanted to do this next after The Post. But uh, but no, to me, this is just this is retrograde garbage. And I'm beyond not endorsing it. I think it should be stamped out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Switched off. But maybe you disagree with me and you want to stamp out my opinion. You find this this movie's love of gaming just simple, joyous fun. So if so, please come and tell us what you think. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right, moving on. Let's do this week's business. Sam, what have we got? Uh, in Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about the death of Stephen Bochco, who was a creator of such landmark TV series as Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, L.A. Law, and uh, Murder One, which kind of prefigured the binge-watching revolution at Cop Rock. Sorry. Can't forget Cop Rock. Yes. <laughs> uh, to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gap Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gap Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Barry is a new comedy on HBO. It stars Bill Hader as Barry Berkman, a hitman who travels to L.A. to kill a target only to be bit by the acting bug while tailing his target to an acting class. He falls for a fellow classmate, Sally, played by Sarah Goldberg, but his handler, Fuchs, played by Stephen Root, won't let Barry's past leave him behind. Let's listen to a clip. This is Barry talking to his boss, Fuchs, after Barry's first night at acting class. So, no ho Hank. Guy wakes me up last night, says you and your Mark were hugging. I saw that? Oh, yeah. Look, 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 something really, really cool happened, okay? Okay. I followed Ryan yesterday, and uh, he went to this theater to take an acting class, and I ended up doing a scene with him from True Romance. True Romance is a movie. Yeah, it's L.A. theaters. I guess all the scenes they do are from movies. Point is, I was really good. And uh, afterwards, I, I hung out with all of them. Them? The acting class, and they're super nice. The whole class, including the guy you were supposed to burn? Ryan Madison, yeah. No, he's a great dude. And uh, I don't know, they just made me feel really good about myself, you know? And uh, you know how you and I talk all the time about my purpose? You think acting could be your purpose? All right, so as you can hear from that clip, this this has a different tone than another HBO show centered around murder might. It's it's lighter. It's a half-hour sitcom format rather than an hour. It Although it has elements of sort of a, a, a mob drama or some kind of crime family drama, it really is more, I would say, of a, of a sitcom. And its its tone is is the whole point with Barry. Whether or not you like it is going to is going to really hinge on whether whether you like that tone or not. So I'll start with you, Christina. How did how did this strike you so far? I think we've only seen the first two episodes, which is all that was available to us. Uh, I 
I found Hader's performance kind of disappointing. I was expecting it to be a lot funnier since, as you say, it's uh, pretty much a comedy or or much more of a comedy than a drama, at least in the first two episodes. Um, I found myself unable to really remember what he was like after I stopped watching it. I think the best part of the show and one of the biggest themes of the show uh, is the contrast between the attitudes of the people who are killing people and the attitudes of the acting students, the former of which uh, are sort of goofy and don't take themselves too seriously, even as they're talking about murdering people and torturing them. And the latter of which, the acting students, everything is life or death for them. Life might not be worth living if they can't, you know, practice their craft, which they're not wildly successful at yet. Um, but Bill Hader himself doesn't see, didn't seem to me to be as magnetic as he has been in SNL and Skeleton Twins and the other things that I've seen him in. Um, so I was a little disappointed. Yeah, well, he's he's playing a very, very restrained character. And I think the first episode, at least, is, is essentially all about his depression and and sort of his stagnation in his career. Right. So and he's also a, we should mention he's an Iraq war veteran. Right. So I think there's a there's a backstory, which we don't hear a lot of. If we hear more of it later in the season, I might start to get more of a sense of his character, who I agree, Christina is kind of a cipher right now. But uh, but the idea, I think, was that he was so severely depressed upon coming back from the war that the only thing that got him out of it was this old family friend, the Stephen Root character, Fuchs, reaching out to him and saying, hey, how about a job killing bad guys? Yeah, I mean, for me, the the, the trick of the show, and I've, I've watched a, a little bit farther than what's aired so far, but and I think it sort of starts to gel a little bit, but it's basically taking two genres both of which I'm bored with and trying to make something out of them. That, Hollywood that is satire. Not so, and- yes, Hollywood satire and like, you know, the the tortured bad man who's trying to give up his evil ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both of which are, are super played out. Um, even on HBO, this is sort of like, I mean, The Sopranos meets Entourage or something like that. Um you know, I do think there is. But it is more hopeful than The Sopranos meets Entourage would be. I mean, it's the only thing I would inject. I think it has a little bit more sweetness. It's not as as cynical and bro as Entourage. In fact, it's not bro at all. No, I mean, it gets and, I, and I, it finds some sort of, you know, sweetness and life in there. I mean, there's a there's an interview with Bill Hader where he talks about um, sort of the strategy for the show, which is that. Um, using kind of the the terms that they would use in his acting class, um, the scenes where dealing with him as a hitman are um, high stakes, no drama, and all the acting class scenes are high drama, no stakes. So there's basically this you know total disconnect between these two worlds, and you have Hater um, who's really doing a very kind of deadpan performance in this kind of ping ponging between them, and I, I think the the key to getting something out of, out of the series is really kind of locking into the underlying sadness in that performance, which I think is something Hater, you know, can bring as an actor. There's a great episode of the the series documentary now um, called uh, Parker Gale's Location is Everything, which is kind of a Spalding Gray pa- parody. And he does this incredible kind of a riff on the Spalding Gray's stage persona in that, which just has this real profound sadness to it. And I think the show taps into that somehow, sometimes. I also think it's very um, uneven at times. I think the direction, Hater directed both of the first two episodes. And, I and think is a it co-creator just, as well, a co-writer. Right? Yeah, and I think it just wobbles in places. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult kind of tonal balance and the shift between them to nail, and I don't think the show is there yet. But yeah, it's a, it's a very big reach to direct your, and write yourself, your own character in which you star in your very first 
series. You know, I mean, I think the, the degree of difficulty is high and he doesn't always attain it. The fact that he is playing this such a tamped down character is, is quite interesting when you consider that. I mean, I think if we love Bill Hader, we love him because of his mimetic skill, as you say, and because of his kind of excess as a performer. Right. Because he's able to to have these bizarre flashes of, of humor in different personas and guises. And so to see him playing someone who has trouble acting, in fact, who's kind of a bad actor, even among this class of pretty mediocre actors, seems like a, a strange choice because he in some ways is taking away one of his own, be- the tools of his own toolbox. Yeah. I mean, the joke of that clip that we just heard is he says, you know, I did the scene and I was great and he was terrible. Um, everybody else in the acting class is pretty much terrible as well. But, we, you know, this is not someone who is like a secretly buried talent who is finally finding himself in this acting class. I mean, he's awful and he stays awful. Um, and Henry Winkler, who is just wonderful as this kind of self-involved um, teacher of this class, I think really the, one of the highlights of the show. For I me, agree. Henry is, Winkler is the highlight of the show. Yeah. So he's you know perfectly willing to take this guy's money and act like it's a great honor to let him into his class when you don't have a sense that people are exactly lining up out the door. Um but you don't really see Barry kind of learning anything about acting over the course of, of you know, what I've seen in the series so far. And that's kind of one of the sort of more subtle Barry jokes of is that you just expect, you know, the show to go in a certain direction for him to start kind of opening up and finding himself. And secretly, he's an artist inside. And actually, the show doesn't believe that at all. Uh, I think I thought that was one of the sweetest parts of the show to see this group of actors who uh, – are, are so passionate about their work and so supportive of each other. It's kind of poking gentle fun at like an improv class or, or a group of people who are newbies at something but think that they're destined for greatness uh, w- without really being mean about it. Um, you know, I think it gives everyone the benefit of the doubt, including Barry, the main character, who I think it's it's hard to ask him to carry a show when he doesn't really have a a self or a, a personality yet. And I think that's the main thing he's trying to, that that draws him to acting, um, which it's not entirely clear what he's getting out of it other than it, it's become fun for him to see people clap for him. But I think what he's getting out of it is kind of learning how to be human because they're all talking about, you know, draw from your past experiences. I think the um, Henry Winkler's character says he always thinks about, when Princess Di died, and that's how he evokes sadness in himself. And uh, Barry is trying to access emotions. In that way, it reminded me of The Sopranos, um, when Tony Soprano goes to therapy because he's having panic attacks and he doesn't know why. I think uh, Barry is like feeling physical feelings of emotions, but doesn't know how to interpret them or react to them or identify them. And uh, acting... It's it's teaching him how to interact with people. And so I imagine once the series continues, he'll start to become more of a person and and more of a driving force of the show. Yeah, without giving too much away, there is a later episode where um, he and Sarah Goldberg, who's great as kind of the sort of main student in this acting class that he develops a friendship with, um, they end up kind of workshopping a scene from Macbeth, um, you know, sort of Lady Macbeth's out-out damn spot monologue. And it's you know, you get the sense that this is the first time Hater's character has ever considered feeling guilty about killing someone or or at least found a, a, a vehicle for that feeling. Um, and that's kind of where where the show starts to go is that, you know, it doesn't make him a better actor, but he is sort of realizing through these kind of tone deaf role plays uh, that, you know, he does have all these things inside him that just hasn't been even known how to begin to think about accessing before. 
I think the show kind of contains its own critique in this one moment that's an interaction between Bill Hader's character and, and the Henry Winkler acting teacher, who, again, is really just hilarious and a great reason to watch it. I think my only laugh out loud line in watching this two episodes was uh, was the title of the book that Henry Winkler's character writes. Do you remember it? it the acting manual that he writes? Yeah, hit your mark and say your lines. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Which is but, good advice. But there's a moment that he and and Bill Hader are having this kind of face off because he takes Henry Winkler takes the acting class very seriously. And Bill Hader, Hader hasn't showed up for the second class that he was supposed to come to. And Bill Hader just tells him everything. Barry just completely confesses straight out, says, I'm a hitman, you know, but I'm conflicted about it. And after the war, I was really depressed. And you're thinking, oh, my God, he's giving away the game. And uh, and Winkler takes the entire thing as a scene yeah. and says, uh, you know, I. I think there's something there. It's completely implausible. <laughs> and that's the moment that I felt that, you know, Winkler was offering a critique of the very show he was in. He said, this is utterly implausible that you would be a hitman. But great know, improv. But, yeah. But yeah, but I think there might be something there and, and let's stick with it. That's a little bit how I feel about the show. I don't really believe the Barry character. I don't quite understand. Is he a sociopath? Is he, you know, what, what is what what's keeping him from being able to access his emotions? Why does he kill people and act at the same time? That tamp down performance that tries to be enigmatic is a little bit just muffled. Um, but I do think there's something there. And if there are, if there had been more episodes available before our conversation, I would certainly watch them. I mean, this this does feel like, you know, a show that maybe should not be airing weekly on HBO. And I, I would almost advise people. To Monthly? Kind of, yes. Well, no, I mean, like this, this is something you kind of want to take in in a big chunk. And I would almost advise people who yeah. are thinking about the show to maybe wait a few weeks and then take in, you know, three or four um, at a clip. It's it's only an eight episode season, so it's going to be a very quick watch by the time it's all out there. Yeah, and it does move along. I mean, it's not it's not sort of um, self serious or overlong. On the flip side of uh, the Barry character not being believable are the mobsters who, to me, also were not believable, but in a good way. And that was my the part of the show that I thought was very funny. Um, the the character who plays or the actor who plays uh, NoHo Hank, Anthony Kerrigan, I thought was fantastic. And I love the way this show portrays them as as just bosses. They're mob bosses, but they're also just, you know, bosses. They're sort of managers and they're, you know, having these sort of meaningless debates over who's going to kill people and why. And Bill Hader is kind of like it seemed to me almost like um, like a graphic designer or somebody else with a client and you're thinking like, all right, what will they want? I'm going to suggest something. How about I kill him this way? And they're like, oh my God, no, why would you suggest that? I'd like you to kill him this other way. Uh, it was like so mundane. Uh, and then he goes to his acting class and it's the opposite of mundane. It's, you know, people crying when they're being told that they'll never make it in this town. Uh, I I think the unbelievability to me was what made that part funny, but uh, I, I didn't really laugh aloud. I found it more like amusing than funny, I guess. Yeah, there's a great bit where um, Noho Hank, the character you're talking about, kind of texts Barry these step-by-step instructions about this person that he's supposed to kill. You know, here's a picture of him. Here's where you go. And then the last text says, please delete this. <laughs> and then and then he signs it. No, yeah. like Noho Hank. Noho Hank. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the the villains are as incompetent or more incompetent than than the actors. I mean, now that we're talking about it, I have kind of an affection for this show. I agree, Sam, that it's taking two tired genres and trying to blend them. And I don't think that they, you know, chemically alchemize into some incredible new blend. But it has a surprising amount of life in it, given that it, it really does depart from some tired tropes. Yep. So the show is Barry. It airs on HBO on Sunday nights. Uh, take a look and tell us what you think. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Last week, in an interview with the French magazine Le Film Francais, the director of the Cannes Film Festival, Thierry Frémaux, announced two changes to the Cannes Film Festival, which will begin this May. 
for one, there will be no more selfies on the red carpet. This isn't the decision we're discussing, but I found it found it fun to mention. It seems very French to, to scorn the selfie, and I just have to read his sentence of explanation of, of why he loathes the selfie tradition. As he tells this magazine, Le Film Francais, at the top of the red carpet, the pettiness and the hold-up caused by the untimely disorder created by taking selfies hurts the quality of the climbing of the steps. I love the quality of the climbing of the steps. And it does the same to the festival as a whole. So he's anti-selfie. He doesn't want to slow down the uh, the climbing of the steps. I can understand that decision. It's very French, but it makes a lot of sense. And the Cannes Film Festival has always been about preserving this certain old world elegance. Like there's dress, there's rules about wearing, I believe, sneakers on the red carpet and things like that, dress codes. But the decision that interests us here is Thierry Fermo's declaration that Netflix movies, movies released by the company Netflix, will no longer be allowed to enter into competition at Cannes. They can still be shown at the festival, but they will no longer be eligible for the Palme d'Or, the grand prize of the festival. So we wanted to talk about this because it's a return to a topic that we often talk about, but because it's in constant flux and something that as film critics, Sam, you and I come across all the time, which is this question of what is a movie and is it important to... to keep the boundaries, the delineations of what a movie is versus a television show or some other sort of, you know, video game, I guess, if we're talking Ready Player One, other forms of kind of content creation entertainment. And how do we set the parameters among those things? It's worth mentioning as well that this is not just a French versus American thing. Uh, There's been a couple of big directors, including Steven Spielberg and Christopher Nolan, who have spoken up in favor of this, if not this very decision, this kind of decision, and uh, and have essentially said that if a film has day and date distribution, as it's called, that is, it's dumped onto Netflix at the same time as it appears in theaters, if it goes to theaters at all. This, for example, happened with Oakjaw last year, which was in competition at the Cannes Film Festival, though it didn't win anything, Um, that, that, that that's a sort of unacceptably untheatrical, unmovie specific form of distribution. What do you guys think of that? Does it does it seem like these are just artificial boundaries that are being kept up in a sort of gatekeeper fashion, or is it something that matters for the future of movies? As somebody who doesn't think about this a lot, you know, I'm not I don't always write about culture, so I'm not constantly thinking about, you know, what is a movie. I think it's a stupid distinction. I mean, I was reading what um I have to match Dana's accent here, Thierry Fremont, <laughs> reading what he was saying, which he said, in order for a film to be part of history, it must go through theaters, box office, the critics, the passion of cinephiles, award campaigns, books, directories, filmographies. I mean, what what don't Netflix films do? They They don't go to theaters and they don't have box offices. I don't really understand what it is about theaters and box offices that makes certain, you know, feature length, audiovisual narratives different from the ones that don't go to the theater and the box office, especially because things like box office sales don't have any impact or shouldn't have any impact on what wins awards. I mean, it has everything else. It goes through the critics. Uh, they clearly have awards campaigns. Uh, but what about the passion des cinéphiles? I I believe that the cinephiles that I know uh, are are perfectly passionate about the films that are being shown on Netflix and Amazon. And I, I don't think that awards ceremonies should be in the business of trying to prop up the success of movie studios just because they have a business model that differs from Amazon and Hulu and what have you. Yeah, I mean, I think you do nail it in saying that it's more about business, I think, in fact, than the aesthetic definition of what constitutes a movie. But I can also I can also appreciate why there would be a sort of guardianship. I mean, I don't think it is just simply a matter of trying to to prop up a failing industry. I think, for example, Fremont makes the point in this in this same interview that in France, there's this 
big tradition of kind of government subsidization of culture, of laws that kind of keep help to keep culture afloat, including a law that has to do with there needs to, I think, be 36 months that pass between a movie's theatrical release and its its release onto video. And uh, and that is a form of protectionism. But what it's protecting is presumably something that's culturally valuable. Uh, before I say anything, I just want to say uh, right up front, um, Charlie Fremont, and we'll all like compare, we'll like you know compete at the end to see who can do the best Fremont. Um, but uh, yeah, I do think kind of the secret villain in in this little tale is um, is France, which, as you mentioned, has this kind of absurd law that you have to wait three years from a movie's theatrical release before it can debut on streaming, which seems positively kind of antediluvian at this point. I mean, that's so out of date with the way the business works. You know, this conflict between Ken and Netflix seems a little bit like a classic sort of alien versus predator. No matter who wins, we lose scenario. <laughs> well, and people I, actually <laughs> booed the Netflix movies at Con last year, right? And I think it had to do with this reason. The, I mean, the idea that Netflix was sort of a, a, a new economy company that was horning its way into the to the film tradition. Right. They think it's cheating. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that approach, though, is that no one is kind of lining up to produce these movies. Um, you know, they, you know, Netflix has just given $125 million to Martin Scorsese to make his next movie, The Irishman. And that's not, you know, no studio was offering him that. Um, you know, they give, you know, $10 million to D. Reese to make uh, Mudbound. And they just, um, you know, debuted it at Sundance, um, this movie called um, Private Life by um, Tamara Jenkins, who's a wonderful filmmaker who hasn't made a movie in 11 years. Um, you know, so it's, you know, that's how these movies are getting made now. And I think for a festival like Cannes to kind of ignore the aspect, that aspect of, or or I think for a festival like Cannes to not only ignore, but try to kind of suppress that aspect of the business is just foolish, especially when this is a festival that screened two episodes of David Lynch's Twin Peaks last year. Um, you know, that wasn't in competition. Netflix movies can still be at Cannes. They just won't be eligible for, for prizes. Um, but, you know, Netflix also has a really bad history, particularly recently, of, you know, making these movies, which is great, and then completely burying them, which is horrible. Like, here's just, I put together just a partial list of some of the movies that Netflix has, quote unquote, released just in 2018. Um, I will read this quickly, because there are a lot of them, but um, The Polka King, Stepsisters, The Open House, Blockbuster, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, The Ritual, When We First Met, Love Per Square Foot, Irreplaceable You, Full Metal Alchemist, Mute, The Outsider, Benji, Take Your Pills, Game Over Man, Paradox, <laughs> and Roxanne, Roxanne. You read this uh, so Don't forget a Christmas Prince. I couldn't yes. tell like what the syntactical relation between those words were. Benji, Take Your Pills? <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I mean, your guess is almost as good as mine as someone who covers you know both movies and TV and streaming for a living. I've, I've heard of maybe three or four of those. I think I've seen one. Um, you know, there are slightly bigger profile ones like um, the Cloverfield Paradox, which they made a, a big deal out of advertising up for this, uh, dropping like right after the Super Bowl surprise releasing it. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of these movies are just getting completely buried in this huge trash dump of, of Netflix releases every week. And that is not good for the films or, you know, however you want to define cinema. You know, that's not good for that. So and Netflix is really I mean, they are kind of exploiting a low pull in the film festival system to get their movies publicity without really contributing anything. I mean, they're not, you know, as far as I know, putting huge sponsor, mo sponsor money into big film festivals. They're not contributing to that ecosystem the way, like, even, even Amazon will, you know, play movies at festivals 
like uh, Manchester by the Sea. You know, they debuted at Sundance that did a whole theatrical run and then it ended up on Amazon and it you know, was ended up winning Oscars and all sorts of other things. And Netflix doesn't want to play that game. You know, Reed Hastings, who's kind of the head of their programming, has, has really aggressively gone after sort of the quality of the theatrical experience and saying that the only thing, the only innovation that movie exhibitors have made in the last 30 years is having better popcorn. You know, so they, they really are kind of out to destroy the... It's like East versus West beef kind of... Yeah, I mean, they really kind of out to destroy the idea of people watching things in theaters, you know, and they'll do... I think there are movies playing in the Tribeca Film Festival that are literally playing, you know, screening in the theater Thursday night and then debuting in Netflix on Friday. And at that point, you know, film festival runs just become a kind of glorified publicity campaign for Netflix movies, and that kind of, you know, degrades the experience uh, of both. Um, but, you know, I don't think this kind of, you know, snooty protectionist can approach is really the way to go either. So um, if I may choose neither side. Right. I mean, I, I think that both sides have a pretty strong argument against them. They're both pretty they're pretty weak, they're like two weak arguments coming up against each other. Like, what's the point of producing all of these mid-budget movies that Hollywood would not be able to produce and heroicizing yourself for it if you then dump them and bury them in such a way that nobody knows they're there? Well, not all of them are getting dumped and buried, right? I mean, I think Netflix's whole strategy is to make a whole bunch of movies. And I mean, wasn't there all these Adam Sandler movies that are that Netflix is putting on its platform. Yeah, Netflix is I think doing either either four or six Adam Sandler movies and you know, if that's the price for getting something like Mudbound made, you know, I I can live with that, but I mean there are signs that it seems like Netflix is getting progressively less interested in even playing the movie game, you know, trying to get, you know, nominated for Oscars and any of that stuff and really just churning out. They're doing a ton of kind of just really middle of the road science fiction and horror right now because those are genres with built in audiences that you don't have to go looking for. And that's, you know, they're basically kind of flooding the market with what, you know, 20 years ago we would have called kind of direct to video movies, you know, that wouldn't have been good enough to release in theaters. Um, so, you know, that in that case, it's not really an issue because these are movies that you wouldn't pay, you know, that you wouldn't buy a ticket to see in the first place. But it really just makes it just makes that pile that you're sifting through to try to find something that's really good, bigger and bigger. Yeah, I did. If I could bring up Spielberg, I did think it was kind of rich that Spielberg decided to uh, characterize the sort of uh, dichotomy between the Netflix film and the big studio film by saying studios would rather make uh, branded tentpole guaranteed box office hits from their inventory than take chances on smaller films, saying that the smaller films are going to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, like you said, Sam. Meanwhile, this guy just released this, you know, big budget action movie adapted from this crazy popular novel. I mean, I don't think Spielberg is the one to criticize the this uh, this system that he is profiting from. I mean, he's the one who introduced Ready Player One as a movie, not a film. I mean, if you're going to be releasing movies, not films, like, who are you to to say, you know, this that Netflix is propping up this system that is encouraging studios to make their worst decisions. Well, and Spielberg is also one of the directors, I mean, going back like, you know, you know, 40 years now. But I mean, you know, Spielberg's Jaws, you know, was kind of the first big summer hit and what used to be kind of a traditionally, you know, dead season for Hollywood movies. And he, you know, was, has been, you know, credited or blamed for kind of creating this whole sort of endless summer blockbuster season that now lasts, you know, starts in April and lasts through the end of August. Um, so, you know, he has been completely on the other side of this debate and, you know, it's just sort of older and more established and, you know, is now, you know, basically saying, well, you know, movies should be in theaters. I mean, it, it's, 
he is talking about these bullshit qualifying runs that movies will undergo to qualify for Oscars. And it is kind of ridiculous that it's, you know, you play a week in 10 theaters or whatever it is, and then you're eligible for an Oscar. You know, and if these movies aren't eligible for Oscars, that's also not the end of the world. I mean, he's talking about awards that are basically given by the movie industry to itself. And the Oscars have a vested interest in protecting, you know, jobs and the way things have, have been done and you know, and so that's that's not surprising. I think, you know, when you get into, oh, if you watch a movie on your TV, is it really a movie is kind of ridiculous at this point. I mean, the vast majority of movies, including Ready Player One, are going to be watched mm-hmm. far more often on TVs than they are in theaters. Um, you know, and Spielberg wants to take the position that, you know, the post is not a movie. If I watch it on a Blu-ray, then um, go right ahead. Right. Well, then you're just contributing to the death of the industry that, that you're trying to save, right? I mean, clearly, however we define this difference, it, it it has to allow for different viewing platform experiences of the same object or else, or the experience of watching movies in theaters is going to die out right quick. All right. Well, if you have a feeling about gatekeeping in the film industry, Netflix movies at cons, selfies on the red carpet, please write in and let us know at facebook.com slash culturefest. Well, that time flew by because we've gotten to the part of the show where we endorse. Christina, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to endorse something rather obscure. I've been told that it's okay to endorse very obscure things. Um, oh, yeah. All the better. So if this people is can a... find them themselves, that would be the point. <laughs> I, I'm reviving an almost dead medium here. Um, I'm endorsing a DVD special feature uh, from the DVD of the season one of The L Word. Um, so I came across this. <laughs> that is so good. I love it already. Deep cut. It's a truly deep cut. Um, I had the experience of having a bookstore close to the Slate office close. It was called Carpe Librum. And they were having a big sale. I went in and in the like super bargain section of this already already marked down closing sale, were three full seasons of The L Word, which, need I remind you, is streaming on Netflix. There's absolutely no reason for me to buy these on DVD other than that I am scared that one day they'll leave Netflix and I will never be able to access this important cultural touchstone. So I was, you know, obviously embarrassed buying it at the store, just like coming up with three seasons of The L Word. But it was worth it because in season one, there's a whole disc of special features. And the best one is um, what they call a puppet movie, but it's not really a puppet movie. The cast made this sort of like no budget home movie on set. It looks like something that my friends and I would have made when we were in eighth grade or something. They um, do the thing where they paint eyes on their chins and turn their faces upside down. (laughs) And they reenact some of the choice scenes from the first season, kind of like in the manner of drunk history where they they do like a quick funny synopsis of the scene um, where you're just sort of saying the like the bare minimum of what the dialogue to get the point across. Um, And the production quality is like so bad it's good. They make these tiny wigs for each of their chins. They cut out little eyeglasses or hats if the character wears them. They make little outfits um, for Shane, who's like the one masculine of center character on the show. They cut out these little paper like muscly arms and put her in a little A shirt. Um, And it's the thing that I loved about it is they kind of make fun of themselves in the way that viewers do. So there's this one character, Tina, who's... Um, and universally despised. <laughs> the most um, hateable of all the hate-watchable characters on that Exactly. Show. 
And in the DVD extra, they make fun of her. I don't think the actress that plays Tina was involved in the making of this extra. But, um, you know, they mimic this sort of weird half Southern-ish accent she does where she's like, let's make a baby bet. And she just says, like, let's make a baby over and over again. And they, like, mock the like overly serious scenes um there's this other character marina who's this like i don't even know what her ethnicity is she's sort of like this pan-european mysterious and sensual character who's like um you know tell me the book that has meant the most to you in your life and it's this upside down mouth like making fun of this actress's accent it's so good i i've watched it several times already it's probably the most I've I've probably watched the DVD extra more than all of the other times it's been watched by individual people put together. Um, And it confirmed exactly what I hoped, which is that all of the actresses on the L word were just goofing off behind the scenes and actually friends and not taking themselves too seriously. It looks like it was not made for mass consumption. Like I said, I think I'm probably the only person who's ever like truly watched it. And (laughs) it made me feel like I was in on their little inside joke because I was like, uh, yeah, I also thought it was super ridiculous that, you know, Marina and Jenny have this overwrought, like, love match over their favorite poem or what have you. Um, uh, the, the cursor that you use to click on the special feature is a tiny woman symbol, <laughs> like the little symbol for Venus. It's so bad. It's good. And if you can get your hands on a copy of the DVD season one of The L Word, please watch this movie. That needs to find its audience. Besides Christina, it needs to it needs yeah. to get out there to the I people might be that it the would only land one, but <laughs> visit a bankrupt bookstore near you. <laughs> Wait, hold the presses. I'm googling right now and finding that this extra exists on YouTube. Hi, this is Christine from the Alward. I just wanted to call and give you your call time for tomorrow, which is at 9:30 a.m. 9:30 a.m. for scenes 26 Apple and 27 Bob. And action. Hi, Jenny. I have this character I write about. She's sort of an alter ego, but not really. Her name is Sarah Schuster. So it looks like we can actually put a link to it on our show page. I can't wait to watch myself. I only watched two seasons of The L Word at the time, but it was one of the few shows that I would say I've ever legitimately hate watched. I actually enjoyed (laughs) watching it, not even with friends to make fun of it, just for some internal mockery. So this sounds right up my alley. It totally is. And you'll understand it. I mean, if you've even seen one episode of the show, you'll understand. Uh, another good thing about it, actually, that I forgot to mention, they make fun of the fact that Jennifer Beals is so much more famous than the rest of them. So they craft these like tiny little, I want to say they're like post-it sized um, trailers for, you know, Shane and Jenny and Tina. And then they pan over and it's Beth's trailer the size of this like gigantic shoebox. Like she's uh, the the one in the show that gets pampered while the rest of them all live in squalor. It's you know what? Perfect. Now I want another featurette that's a behind the scenes of making that puppet show, just showing them painting on everyone's chin and building the little props and everything. I would die. <laughs> all right, Sam, can you talk? Can you top that with your endorsement? I'm going to top uh, Christina's obscure pick with an Equally obscure uh, platinum number one country album from 2016. Um, I uh, I took a road trip with my family last week. Um, shout out to uh, Zion National Park and nice. the Valley of Fire. Um, and one thing you need for a good road trip is music. 
And um, the thing I, I happened on, kind of inspired by the uh, Casey Chambers album that's just come out, had me thinking back to Miranda Lambert's The Weight of These Wings, which came out in uh, 2016. Um, and it is an album that I loved then and love even more now. Um, when it came out at the time, it was basically framed as her divorce record. She had you know, split up from her kind of fellow country star, um, less talented, but fellow country star, uh, Blake Shelton. Um, and it was really kind of seen in that context and kind of sifted through for like, oh, there's the song her boyfriend wrote. There's the song that's probably about him um, and kind of parsed to death in those terms um, a full year and a half later, which is like 7000 rotations of the pop culture earth. I think you can kind of hear it in its own context um, a little bit better. It's, you know, it's not a sort of classic breakup album in the sense that there's a lot of kind of, you know, there's heartbreak and recrimination on it. But what it really drives it for me is there's just this real sense of uh, liberation to it. It's it's a kind of a double album, uh, 24 songs, about an hour and a half. And it's just, she's just kind of trying her hand at, at anything she feels like. It's like you want a song that sounds like a kind of big, like atmospheric U2 rocker from the 1980s. We can do that. Um, you want a song that sounds like something Elvis could have cut in Sun Studios in the 1950s? We can do that, too. You want something that kind of sounds like it might have been a Roseanne Cash album in the 1980s? You know, do that one. Do that one as well. And she just kind of nails everything she tries, particularly in, on the first disc, um, the first 12 songs. It kind of got to I hadn't really listened to the whole thing in in some ways um, because it's so long and a road trip is good to actually get through all hour and a half of it. And it does kind of you know, like almost every other double album kind of slack off in in the latter half. Uh, but there's just a lot of incredible songs on it, um, you know, just in, in terms of her voice and, and the um, and the musicianship. But I really got into the writing. Um, there's just a real kind of precision and an incredible sense of place to the lyrics. My current favorite, uh, I've been through several, but my kind of current pick hit is a song called Ugly Lights, which is basically the narrator, the Miranda Lambert character, is just kind of, you know, the lone single woman sitting at this dive bar, just kind of nursing her drink and watching everybody else um, hook up and then just, you know, not really enjoying not ha feeling the pressure to do that herself um, and sitting there until the, you know, the ugly lights come on at, at 2 a.m. It's just got it's got all this kind of incredible imagery. There's this line about, um, you know, sitting in the dark in a crowded room with pockets full of rings um, and, you know, watching these, you know, married men kind of, you know, vainly, you know, hit on these single women until they, you know, eventually it's the end of the night and everybody finds somebody to go home with. Well, everybody's got a spark. It's easy hiding in the dark in a crowded room with pockets full of rings. I sit and watch the whiskey pour, the married men, the exit door, the beginning of another matchbook you know, it, it's just such a great um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, kind of barroom evocation of that milieu, I guess. And it also does a thing that I really love in pop songs, which are there's there's a line in it. Um, the first line to the chorus is, you know, um, I'm just going to you know stay too late and be the girl bartenders hate, the one who doesn't want another one. Um, and I think I listened to that song probably like 30 or 40 times before I realized that you could read this, that, that last line two ways. Um, so it's not just about not wanting another drink, but not needing another person. Um, and, you know, just having that little kind of bomb in the middle of this pop song that kind of eventually, you know, exploded for me the, you know, 20th or 30th time I listened to is just something that like one of the things I love about pop music so much is it just seems like this innocuous line that's just kind of 
lying there waiting for you to kind of step on it the right way. Um, so if you happen to be, you know, taking a, a drive or a longish subway ride or anything else in the near future. Um, so the album, again, is Miranda Lambert, The Weight of These Wings. Well, that sounds great. Thanks, Sam. All right. Well, I'm doing a musical endorsement, too. I wanted to find something kind of cleansing to counteract the uh, the Ready Player One brain clog that you experience on, on walking out of that movie. So I'm going to endorse something classical, which I also like to do when Steven's not around because he makes fun of me and my, my music taste. But this is a, a wonderful new album called the Brandenburg Duets. It's uh, it's Bach's Brandenburg Concertos, which are probably maybe one of the most familiar pieces Bach has written, but arranged for forehand piano. So they're these orchestral pieces that you're used to hearing with, you know, not a full orchestra, but I mean, a, a fairly substantial one. One of the two pianists who plays on the album, Eleanor Bindman, has decided to transcribe the same music for forehand piano, which is, you know, two people sitting at a piano together. So it's played by Eleanor Bindman and Jenny Lynn. I believe this release is more, I mean, in a way, is sort of like the, the announcement of the transcription. So what really exists now is this transcription of this music for anyone to play on forehand piano. But if you want to hear it done really well, this album, The Brandenburg Duets, is just um, is a beautiful kind of distillation of the sound of, of orchestral music down to a piano. I think we've talked about this before in, in endorsement segments, which is that, you know, when Bach was writing his music, pianos didn't exist yet, the pianoforte as we know it. And, uh, and yet his music is so perfectly suited for that instrument. So, I mean, there's sort of, to me, nothing like Bach transcribed for piano. But when you especially hear something that's a big, complex piece just turned into this intricate little forehand piece, it's it's really beautiful. Also, the, the booklet to this album is really interesting because Eleanor Byman talks at length about why she decided to do the transcription, what was lacking from the existing transcriptions of Bach, and just what the experience was like to take this extremely famous piece of music and try to re- sort of rethink it from the ground up. So again, it's the Brandenburg duets. The pianists are Eleanor Byman and Jenny Lynn. You can find it wherever you buy music, and I'm loving it right now. Is that, is that a Jenny Lind like the Swedish nightingale? <laughs> Jenny Lynn with no D. Ah, okay. All right. Well, Sam and Christina, thanks so much for coming on and joining this week. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You will find links to the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed, of course, is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. For Christina Cotarucci and Sam Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll see you next week.